I was driving east out of town this week, and it was a, a lonely drive, didn't see anybody in my rear view, and, and in front of me there was only one vehicle coming towards me, and it seemed like it was a little bit off, right? You know, sometimes you're driving and things just seem a little out of kilter. It was a big semi pulling a full trailer, but it, and, and his flashers were on. And it was a gray November day, and I just thought, this is a great metaphor for kind of where a lot of us are in life. Maybe where I was in life that moment. It was this sort of metaphor. For, right? He's, this big rig is all alone. Lights are flashing on it, so what does that mean? But it's not stopped, right? So I don't want any help. Don't check on me. Just go around me and leave me alone. I've got all my stuff here. I don't need your help. I'm just going to keep plugging away, but, but go around me and leave me alone. Don't stop. Don't bother. And I think sometimes we get to that place, a place of real fatigue, a place of just being tired with life. And oddly enough, that is what our passage is going to be addressing for us this morning. But now before we get to the part where we kind of contemplate on the meaning of our passage for us, let's first kind of wrap our brains around Isaiah 38 and 39. Let's look at it in the context and walk through it briefly together. And then just think about what is this, frankly, kind of confusing couple of chapters, right? This is, these are a couple of those kind of chapters where you're like, okay, did somebody put this together or did you just find it? Right? Like, what are these two chapters doing in the book of Isaiah? They're not really like prophetic material. You know, you look at chapter 38, and, you know, you've got this chapter, this story about Hezekiah being healed. And then, if you look down to verse 21, it says, Now Isaiah had said, Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. What's the point? Is this to show the therapeutic uh, value of fig newtons? Is that what this chapter is about? Like, what is going on? In these chapters. So let's, let's take chapter 38 and 39, put them in context, and then think about what this means for us. So last week we talked about chapters 36 and 37, which is where King Hezekiah is being confronted by Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and the Rabshakeh, the sort of military uh, spokesperson who's threatening Hezekiah, threatening Jerusalem. And Hezekiah does, right, he does a great thing. He responds to these threats, he responds to these uh, these threats, other word for threat, and he, he prays, right, in chapter 37, verses 16 to 20, and God does this extraordinary thing, right, so chapters 36 and 37 are all this one story about Assyria fighting Jerusalem, and Hezekiah prays, and God responds, and God reveals his greatness, but here's the other thing in chapters 36 and 37 that we didn't talk about much last week, but this is another big theme that really comes to the forefront in contrast with our chapters today. So Isaiah 36 and 37, what we talked about last week, is where God reveals his greatness and we get to see how a good king should act. How should a good king act? A good king should act in strength from the Lord. How's he going to get that strength? Remember Isaiah 30, 15, in quietness and trust, you shall, shall be your strength. The king is going to get his strength by being quiet before the Lord and trusting in him. And that is what Hezekiah does. Hezekiah models what a great, good king should do. All right, so then we come to chapters from that, from this great example of a good king, to chapters 38 and 39. What, what are these about? So chapter 38, Nate read it for us this morning. Chapter 38 tells us about a time that Hezekiah got sick. Again, he prays. 
That's good, seems good, and the Lord delivers him. Okay. Chapter 39 tells about a time where Hezekiah gets a visit from Babylon. Look at some of this with me. It says in verse 2, in chapter 39, verse 2, that Hezekiah welcomed the, the, the group from Babylon gladly. He showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his old armory. All that was found in his storehouses. There was Now this is emphasized, right? There was nothing in his whole house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show him. So he says it all, and then he emphasizes it, that there was nothing that he didn't show him. And then Isaiah, in verse 3, comes, and he says, what do these men say? From where did they come to you? As the guy said, they come to me from far country, from Babylon. Verse 4, what have they seen in your house? Like Isaiah, it's like Isaiah heard what Hezekiah did, and now Isaiah's like, what did you do? What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answers in verse 4, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my store. Like he totally confirms it. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show him. Why would Hezekiah do all this? Right? Why any of us would do it, right? Like when we have somebody over and we're like, hey, look at this, look at this, look at this thing, look at this. Want to see my, what's in my garage? Want to see what's in my basement? What are we doing? We're showing off. Right? He wants the, 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 the cohort of people from Babylon to be like, wow, this guy is a worthy ally. Because right? that's what Babylon's kind of doing. They're sort of feeling out the, uh, the underbelly of the Assyrian Empire for weak spots. And so they're sort of checking Hezekiah and Jerusalem out. And Hezekiah wants them to know, like, hey, I'm your guy. But then Isaiah says, hear the word of the Lord, verse 5. Verse 6, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that which your father stored up to this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. Hezekiah's all like, I should, there's nothing I didn't show him. And Isaiah's like, that's great. Nothing's going to be left after Babylon gets done with you guys. Now, when Hezekiah hears this news, right, what does he do? Oh, he, he rends his garments and puts on sackcloth, just like he did in chapter 37 at the threats of the king of Assyria. Is that what he does? That's not what he does. Does he weep bitterly like he did when he heard that he was going to die, that he had a sickness that was going to take his life? Does he weep bitterly like he does in chapter 38? No, he doesn't do that either. He says... Hezekiah said to Isaiah in verse 8, Well, the will the Lord be done. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Well, God's will be done. At least it's not going to happen under my watch. At least I get to escape it. Is this okay? This doesn't feel right, does it? What's the point of these stories? Right, so... So chapters 36 and 37, we've got this great Hezekiah, this servant of the Lord praying this great prayer, and God just boom. And then chapter 38, it's like, you know, Hezekiah's all like, oh, I don't want to die. Forget, don't forget all the stuff that I did for you, God. Well, that doesn't seem, that seems a little bit weird, like something's changed. And then 39, very much changed. He's just like another Middle Eastern king who's just kind of showing off when people come to visit. And when destruction's prophesied against God's people, he's sort of like, well, whatever, I guess. It's not going to touch me. What, what is the point of these stories? Now, so now I want to put the whole Hezekiah group of stories, chapter 36 to 39, which is really all we know about Hezekiah, like right? three stories. 
So these have been, this is not all that Isaiah knew about it because he's embedded in Hezekiah's palace and then the nobility. So these are three stories that he picks out for a point. And the point, the reason we have this here is because chapter 40 begins what is such a different kind of book that some people think it, they call it second Isaiah, like it's the second volume of a work. The first part of Isaiah is all about God's judgment on Jerusalem and Judah and on other countries. And the second part of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, it's all about, it's, it's a different emphasis to a different group of people. And the emphasis is on hope, because now all of God's people are in exile. Babylon has come. Isaiah's speaking to a time when Babylon actually did come and did all this stuff, and now God's people are off in exile. So what these chapters are doing is preparing us for that hope, turning our hearts and turning our thoughts to what God is going to do. So the point of these stories is that they get us ready for our true hope. They're, they're turning us, the reader, Isaiah's first readers and his original audience, towards the hope that God is going to bring. So these chapters, verses 38 and 39, in, in tension with, verses, with chapters 36 and 37, they create a tension that 40 to 46 is going to resolve. And they create that tension by contrasting Hezekiah before and Hezekiah later. Hezekiah before and Hezekiah later. So in chapters 36 and 37, we see this. We see that Hezekiah is focused on God. Right? There's this big Assyrian threat, Sennacherib, the Rabshakeh, and Hezekiah is focused on God. And through that story, we see Hezekiah being faithful to what God has called him to do. God has called Hezekiah the king to take care of Israel, to take care of Jerusalem and the people, and to honor the glory of God. And this is exactly what Hezekiah does. He does it perfectly. He does a great job. He is a good king. What do you see in chapter 38? He's not focused on God anymore. He's mostly concerned with his own safety and comfort. Look at, uh, by way of comparison, listen to Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 37, the last verse of it, Isaiah 37, verse 20, where he says, So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the God. You alone are the Lord. And you compare that with his prayer in chapter 38, verse 3, where he says, Please, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and how I've done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. It's kind of a different kind of prayer, right? Whereas before he was focused on God's glory and God's name, now he's focused on, on his own faithfulness, on the fact that he did such a good job. God, how can you do this to me? I'm such an amazing king. I, did, I worked so hard for you. And then you can see this in your Bibles. Chapter 38 is mostly this extended prayer poem. Like Hezekiah pulls out his electric guitar and he just starts riffing on like all the good stuff he's been doing and why God should be, you know, fixing his life. It's, it's, not, a great, it's not a great little poem. All right, so that's chapter 38. Chapter 39, this is where the Babylonian envoy shows up and Hezekiah's like, hey, can I show you around a little bit? Right? What is, what is Hezekiah doing there? He's very proud of his prosperity in chapter 39, which is 
it's not as, as stark of a contrast, but there's a line in his big prayer in chapter 37 where he says, oh, the gods of the nations right there, they're made out of gold and silver and stone and they're nothing. You're the only thing that matters. And then here in this list in chapter 39 where it says in verse 4 where Hezekiah showed him everything, his treasure house, the silver, the gold, right? All the stuff that previously he was like, none of that stuff matters as long as you're glorified and you work, God. And now he's like, hey, look at all my stuff. He's really proud of his prosperity. He's not focused on what God has called him to do. He's, not, he's focused on his own glory. And that's what he's doing. He's showing off. He's showing these people how great he is. So, so what happens to this guy? What happens to King Hezekiah from chapters 36 and 37 into chapter 38 and 39? I mean, Hezekiah was a good king. But can you guess what happened to him? I mean, he got tired. I think he just got tired. He, he got tired of holding God's honor, his, God's glory in his heart. He got, tired of, he got tired of holding God's people in his heart. And instead of caring for other people, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love others as you love yourself, instead of doing that, security and the desire for comfort crept into his heart and displaced what God had called him to do. Have you ever experienced that? Where there's seasons where you feel very strongly where what I am to do, I'm just, I want God to be glorified no matter what. And you just feel alive with that. Or you feel like, I just love these people and God has called me to these people. I want to serve them. I want to do what I doesn't. My life doesn't matter at all. I just want to be there for them. I just want to encourage them to know the Lord. I want to take care of their needs. And then, and then it just sort of slips away, right? And you just feel like, well, you know what? I need a little me time. You know, I need a little, I need to take care of myself. I, and that begins to grow in your spirit. If you, you experience this, you just kind of get tired, right? And so instead of God's glory, Hezekiah is interested in his own glory. Instead of his people's safety, Hezekiah is interested in his own safety. He was a good king, and then he just kind of stops being a good king. And I think King Hezekiah in this story, he's that semi. Just, I got all my stuff here. I don't, like, just leave me alone. I got my flashers on. I'm tired. I'm not stopped. I don't want you to stop. I'm not asking for help. Just go on by. Don't bother me. Just leave me alone. I don't want to do any of the stuff that I'm supposed to do. I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm still king. It's, everything's fine. Just leave me alone. I think through this contrast, through this tension, chapters 38 and 39 actually return us to what is the energizing question of the entire book of Isaiah, which is who is God's true king? Who is the Messiah going to be? What is he going to be like? Because really before Isaiah, we don't know that much about the character, the personality of who the Messiah is going to be. And so already to this point, we've been learning things, right? Isaiah chapter 9, right? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, he shall be prince of peace, and, and of the gov- rule of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David. Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come from the stump of Jesse a shoot. A a shoot from the root of the stump of Jesse. And the Spirit of the Lord shall come upon him. And he shall rule and he shall judge and he shall do justice. 
So we're, we're learning about this guy already in the book of Isaiah. I mean, the point of the book of Isaiah really is, let me see, this is a slide, is to put our hope in God's coming king. Right? That is really the, the main thrust of the entire book of Isaiah, is, as is all of Scripture, right? I mean, just as a theological aside, everything in the Bible is the Spirit trying to get us to take all of our faith and our hope and our trust and our, our confidence off of other things and put them on to the Son of God who is our Savior. Off of all these other relationships and onto that relationship. All of these, off of these other dreams and onto that dream. Out of these other kingdoms and into that kingdom. And that is what everything in the Bible is about. And as Isaiah is especially beautiful in that regard for pointing us towards this coming king. So chapters 38 and 39 of Isaiah help us to realize that, man, as good as a king as Hezekiah was, and really, is there a better king than Hezekiah and what he does standing up to Assyria on God's behalf in 36 and 37? But as good of a king as King Hezekiah is, was, we need a better king. We need the king who is described as reigning forever. This is the promise that God gave to David. He says, I'm going to seat one of your descendants on your throne and he's going to rule forever. We need a forever king. We need a king who's not going to get tired of us. We need a king who can embody the heart of the Lord. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. It says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. We need that kind of a king, a king with the spirit of the Lord, like Isaiah's already talked about, who doesn't faint or get tired. Because you know what? We're a tiresome group of people to be the king of. We're a tiresome people to have to shepherd and to care for. So we need, we need God's king who never gets tired of us. We need a king who's whose heart whose heart won't stop holding God's glory and our good whose heart won't stop holding us this is really a kind of a big question throughout the entire old testament right think about all of the great characters in the old testament who finishes well who finishes their story well right you got Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Aaron, King David. Basically, anybody whose story we know much of, we see them fall apart at some point. They don't finish well. And so this really embodies the two big questions which our text is dealing with, which Isaiah is dealing with, the Old Testament is dealing with, which is, first of all, can we please get a king who finishes well? Instead of having 20 years of prosperity and then 20 years of mediocrity and 20 years of horror, can we have a king who reigns forever? And the second thing, which is, God, can, can you do something to us so that we finish well? Now, how many people have you seen not finish well? In the faith, in life, lonely, right? Just that semi-truck is like a perfect picture of their life. They got... Right? All this stuff, it's their stuff. They, worry. they don't want to let it go. They don't want any help. They're just slowly going down. And they got flashers too. You know these people with flashers because you're like, <laughs> okay. Can you do something, God, so we finish well? I mean, we see in this passage that even godly kings tend to grow selfish. They tend to quit. 
right? There is, a, there is an invisible right, gravity that is at work in all of our lives. The gravity of sin, right? Our sinfulness, our actual sins, and the sins of everybody else. The sins of the person sitting next to you, on either side, in front of you, and in back of you, right? We're swimming through a sea of sinfulness as sinners. And this is all invisible to us. It just looks like normal, like these are nice people. But this is all pulling us down and making it so we want to quit. We need to get selfish too. And so because of this, right, we need God's king. We need God's king. Turn to Isaiah 40, which is the next chapter after chapter 39. I just want to point that out. <laughs> Isaiah 40, verse 9. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of the gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, preacher of the gospel. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This is a reference to God's king. God's king is going to be like a shepherd who holds us in his heart and doesn't let us go. Look at the next, uh, next reference here in chapter 42. For chapter 42. And I just picked really the closest references to God's true king. In chapter 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. So this is a hyperlink back to Isaiah 11, where uh, the root from the stump of Jesse, and I'll put my spirit on him. I've put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now look at verse 4. And he will not grow faint or be discouraged. What God said about himself in Isaiah 40 is now being said about this, his servant, the one true king who's to come. And we meet this guy. And listen to how he talks about himself in John chapter 10. If you want to turn there, look at John chapter 10, verse 11. So Isaiah, we just read, talks about this God's true king as being a shepherd, as being somebody who won't quit. We read in John 10, verse 11, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who doesn't own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. That's kind of Hezekiah's heart at the end of his life, isn't it? Like, well, I guess whatever. Whatever happens to them is fine. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. Look down to verse 26, 27. In John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is not going to let us go. Jesus is not going to get tired of us or quit on us. In fact, John makes this point in John chapter 13, verse 1, where John says, before the feast of Passover, so this is the night Jesus was betrayed. This is what John says of him. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is what Jesus does for us. This is what the true king does. He loves his own to the end. Jesus is the true king. Jesus, right? Jesus keeps on trucking. No matter what we throw at him, no matter what life throws at him. 
Jesus never gets tired of seeking God's glory. We go a little further here in John chapter 17. Jesus' prayer right before he's betrayed and arrested and goes to the cross. He says his first words out of his mouth, Father, glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus never gets tired of honoring the Father and doing God's will. Thank goodness for that, right? Because that means that everything Jesus does is good and nothing he does is sloppy or weak or compromised. Right? If we had enough leaders in our world like that, in the workplace, at home, in government, Jesus isn't going to do that. He's only ever going to do the will of God for the glory of God. And not only that, but Jesus is always going to do good for us. He's never going to be tired, ever. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, that we have this great high priest, Jesus, sitting on the throne of grace so that whenever we need mercy or help, we can go to him. 24-7, 365 or 366, depending. He's there for us. And so, very simply, hope in him. Right? The first part of our, the first application of our text is hope in Jesus. Because Jesus is not like King Hezekiah. Jesus can save us to the uttermost, the author of Hebrews says, the uttermost, completely, and at all times, Jesus can save us. His heart won't quit. I'm going to keep talking about his heart, because that's going to come back and be important in a minute. His heart won't quit. And so hoping in Jesus, this is kind of a, probably some of you, it's not even like a a real set of words, right? You just hear hope in Jesus so often. Hope in Jesus means, and don't hope in anyone but Jesus to hold you to the end and deliver you like this. Have you heard about this story? I just, I couldn't believe this. This is so astonishing to me that I just had to share it with you. So, um, Apparently, there is, you've heard of the QAnon sort of conspiracy cult that has emerged in the last couple of years. Apparently, there is a conspiracy that John F. Kennedy Jr., the great head of hair, uh, who died in 1999, is actually going to, I don't know if, I, I was confused, if he's going to be resurrected or just reemerge. And there have been multiple prophetic vo- Q prophecies and thousands of people have gathered at different locations in Texas, you'll be, find that hard to believe, uh, have mul- gathered at multiple locations at different times to receive the promised one who is going to then join up with former President Trump and uh, usher in a new era in American history. Thousands of, of grown-up Americans are looking to John F. Kennedy Jr. to come back and be their savior, literally. Like, so the stuff that we think about Jesus, they're looking to JJ, or what do they call him, John John, to do. Now, I like that example because it's so bizarre. But we do this to people. We do this to people. We look to each other, we look to relationships, we look to parents, we look to kids, we look to peers, we look to bosses, we look to clients to show up in our life and forge a relationship with us that is going to bring us into prosperity and blessing and protection forever and ever. And they're just not gonna. They're not gonna. They can be great. They can be a really good Hezekiah, great king, fabulous king. He's not gonna do it. Your spouse, your kids, your parents, your clients, your coworkers, great, fantastic, praise God, I'm glad you have them. They're not gonna do it for you. They're going to get tired of doing God's will. They're going to get tired of you. And they're not going to last. Jesus is the only one who is going to last. So hope in him. That's what this means, is hope in him. 
As Peter says, fix your hope completely on the grace to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the first big gospel point and the first big question. But we have the second question, right? The second question, which is, hey, we don't want to be like King Hezekiah either. I'm tired of all these Christians aging and just being like, ah, fooey on it all. How can we stay faithful to God? How can we stay faithful to God? And this is the second bit of good news, that we don't have to be like King Hezekiah either anymore. We get salvation from Jesus, but we also get strength. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. This is going to be the last place I ask you to turn this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, verse 1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Amen? That's what we want to do, right? Somebody's sleeping next to you. Give them a little elbow. Or say amen kind of loud, right? Amen? Amen. All right. This is what we want. We want to run the race that is set before us with endurance. How do we do it? We look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We have hope in Jesus, but Jesus also wants to help us to stay faithful to him. Jesus wants to help us to stay faithful to him. Now, you might be asking, do, okay, hang on. That sounds like it's going to hurt. <laughs> that sounds like that's going to be a lot of work, running the race with endurance. How about laying on the couch with endurance? Can we do that for Jesus' glory? This is, is this going to be painful. Do we really have to do it, right? So Jesus is our Savior, and then we don't have to do anything else, right, ever again. Why is it important for us to try to finish well? To try to lean on Jesus and finish well. It's important. Think about why King Hezekiah was important. Right? Why was King Hezekiah so important? Well, he was the king, right? But what did the king do? The king's job was to point people to the coming Messiah by being like the Messiah. To point people to the coming Messiah by being like the Messiah. To be a humble, it's not me, but reflection of the one to come. Who does that sound like? Sounds like us. We are supposed to be like the Messiah and point people to the Messiah. This is what the Spirit is doing in our life, transforming us into the same image, into Jesus' image, so that the world may see him in us. So Jesus wants to support us in this work. He wants us to not become more stories of people who don't finish well. So how does Jesus sustain us? The same way he saves us, with his heart, with, the, with, his, with who he is, his character. Saves us and sustains us. Jesus gives us his heart. Let me try to explain how this happens. Um, so what makes a great sports audience? Right? Have you ever been at a, a sporting event and it's a great audience, right? It's a great group of fans. What makes a great group of fans? Now, a great group of fans, right? We're not there to cheer because we're in such good shape, right? 
That doesn't make a great group of fans. Our athleticism, oh, I'm an, a- I'm an athlete, that's why I'm cheering for athletes, because I'm such a good athlete. No, it's usually the exact opposite, right? The, the, the fans are the almost uh, antitype to the athletes out on the court. And we're not there to cheer because we are so nice. Like, oh, we just feel bad for these uh, spectacularly fit millionaires. We just want them to know that people appreciate what they're doing. Right? That's not why we're there either. What makes a great sports audience and, and what, what happens to create that is that we are drawn into the story and character of our champion as we behold their glories. Right? That is what makes a great group of fans is when their story, character, and success somehow comes into our hearts and changes and energizes us together. That is what makes a great sports fan group. The champ's heart comes into our heart as we see the champion's glory in the context of what they had to overcome to get there. In the context of what they had to go through last season. when Oh, when they had great disappointment. And we know all this and we see their success and it thrills us. That we join heart to heart with them. Now listen to Hebrews 12 again. Let us run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus. And let's consider Him so that we don't grow faint-hearted or weary. Jesus delivers his, His life, His heart, His glory, His love, His power to us as we behold it. And it comes into our lives and changes us. So you and I can't save anybody. But as we get to know the story of Jesus and His character and we see His glories, His heart will enter our hearts, right? So we sing, uh, He will hold me fast. You like that song? I love that song. He will hold me fast. And we sing, He will hold me fast. And what does it make you feel like you can do? It makes you feel like, you know what? I, I can hold on. He will hold me, I can hold on. He will hold me, I can hold on. His strength, His glory comes into me and it gives me that same thing. His heart comes into my heart. It gives me heart. And so, in that way, His heart enters me, gives me what I need, and then His heart enters the world in us. Let me read to you from John 17 again, that prayer that Jesus prayed at the, end of, at the very end of His ministry, right before, minutes before He goes to the cross. And gets arrested. He says, Father, the glory that you've given me, I want to give to them. And Father, the love that you've given to me, I want to give to them. So that I am in them. So that I am in them. Who's the them? It's you. Right? I am in them so that the world may know that you sent me and that you've loved them. So Jesus comes in to my life my heart with his heart, and so his heart comes into the world. Now, when I forget about Jesus, when I forget about his heart, right, I forget about who he is and what he's done and his glory, then I start to worry about myself. I get worried for myself. And I start to focus, well, hey, okay, at least I'm doing, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm going to church, I'm a good person, I, right? We got this arrangement. And what ends up happening is his heart disappears to me. I don't see him anymore, and his, his heart dis- disappears in me. I'm not living it out anymore. I'm like that semi, right? I got my 
full load, leave me alone. Got my flashers on, just tired, just crawling down the road all by myself. But this is an easily remedied situation. Romans 5, 5 says that the love of the Father is poured into our hearts, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit of Jesus. If you're feeling like that run-down, weary, lonely semi-truck this morning, just ask the Lord. Ask your King. Ask the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Show me your heart again. Show me your heart for me. That you are my Savior. And then give me your heart. Give me your energy. Give me your life and your love. God's good King is our Lord Jesus Christ. And His heart will hold us forever. And we know that now because we've met Jesus and we've seen what he went through. And knowing Jesus and knowing all that is what will give us heart to follow him, to do what he's called us to do and finish well. So friends, let us know and let us press on to know the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time to be together and to contemplate your word together. And even though the stories of Hezekiah are kind of strange and, and a little bit negative, they reawaken in us a longing to know the true king and a longing to be changed by him. And so, Lord, we're here this morning for both things. We ask that you would show us the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might know him better. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would transform us into his image. He who never lets us go, he who holds us fast, Lord, give us that same strength, that those same characteristics as well, that we would hold this faith that we have in you firm to the end. So please bless this word and let it dwell in us richly now. In Jesus' name, amen.